this is Drew McQueenie, and welcome to a Patreon bonus episode for 80s All Over. I'm joined today by a very special guest, a film fan in general, and uh, he's picked some of his very favorite obscure 80s titles. Uh, please welcome Bill Hader. Hello. Hi, Bill. Drew. The thing about doing this show that I've enjoyed so much so far is sort of taking nostalgia goggles off and looking at looking back at the fact that the 80s were about more than those 70 movies that everybody talks about. Yeah. And a big part of that has been uh, one of the things that's been most satisfying is when people go back and they watch these, uh, hearing people get excited about things that they didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised there's a lot of stuff. We've got to remember it's 37 years ago for some of these movies that we're talking about. And they are now not in the mainstream and not in conversation. So something that you and I might know well, like used cars is still surprising to a lot of people who don't know that movie exists. Um, But your list, one of the things I really liked about it is uh, some of these films you had to work to see. They were not easily discovered. They were not ones that were playing at every mall. And there was the eighties still felt like you had to hunt movies down sometimes. Yeah. Um, the first film on your list is a perfect example of that. I knew of it because George Lucas's name was on it somewhere. And that made it automatically interesting in a target. But man, I can't think of any movie more different than anything he's ever done than Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Yeah. Paul Schrader uh, directed it. I found out about it, like a v- the VHS, just the cover of it. I remember seeing that and just thinking, well, what is this? And then the guy at the video store said, um, he explained to me what Harry Carey is, you know? <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, no, this it's about this uh, writer it's a true story about this writer Mishima and he was kind of, I remember him specifically saying it would be like if Stephen King tried to overthrow the government mm-hmm. and then when it didn't work, he killed, he killed himself. Yeah. <laughs> and I <That's> said, <laughs> okay, I'm in. I'm in. That's and, and I said, Oh, I'm in. And he said, and I remember this, this clerk is at sound warehouse in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he said, uh, and they recreate the stories. So it's kind of this, you know, you're seeing his life story, but then you're also seeing his stories dramatized. Mm-hmm. What I didn't expect in is this movie dramatized in an incredibly theatrical way. The, the stars of this movie for me are Paul Schrader's directing. I think with blue collar, maybe I think this is his best I think, movie. I think this I think. is definitely, it's his most aggressively directed movie. Yeah. It's, where you go, wow, he was a real, yeah. he's the real deal with this movie, you know? And I never, I, I, I honestly could say I've never seen anything like it. Well, it's got that, it's got that stink of obsession on it, which yeah. I love about, I, those are movies that I really love where you can tell that the guy who made this movie, there was about six years before this where all he thought about yeah, was, was this guy exactly. and this movie and how he was going to make it work. Yeah. And it is beautiful and surreal. And when I saw it the first time in the mid eighties, it was too much for me. I mean, I didn't get it. Yeah. I, yeah. No, it took, it was hard for me when I first saw it as well, because it's such a, uh, ambitious movie. Um, and you couldn't Wikipedia. No. Mishima, when you went home, you couldn't just bring it up and read about no. him and then get the context. Yeah, and I wanted to go find out what did Mishima actually look like. And when I saw what he looked like, he was actually much different than the lead of the movie. Can he, can Ortega, the vengeance is mine. That's the mm-hmm. lead, lead guy in the movie. And then, uh, but the other star of this movie for me is John Bailey's cinematography. Yeah. Is, is uh, I remember uh, Visions of Light, the great documentary about cinematographers. This movie appeared in that the montages in that film a lot yeah and I, and I always appreciated that that I always just felt like it was a film I was like why aren't more people why isn't this on more lists why aren't more people talking about I'm glad Criterion finally did it because exactly. it was a title it's that, a great disc yeah it's it was a, a title disc. they had to do and yeah. and it's that kind of film and I remember when it came out I remember uh, Ebert and Siskel talking about it so I knew it was out there Time Magazine reviewed it but it did not play in my area for almost a year yeah. after that initial burst of publicity and so when it finally did it was one week yeah. I had to really hunt it down and yeah it was such a giant meal of a movie that I didn't totally get it but I knew that I had seen something that 
was sticking to me. Yeah. Like, you can't forget it. After no, you scene. don't forget it. And you just go, wow, that, like, no one would have the foresight to get to give someone that money to do that movie right now. I mean, it is, like, an incredibly expensive art movie. Yeah. About a, a guy that, that has a very down ending. I mean, all the things that you're supposed to have in a movie, this movie subverts it all but it does George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola I guess Schrader went to them towards when he was running out of funds and they helped secure some more money for him back when they were I find that really Kurosawa and all these other Japanese that era of when Lucas because he never Lucas could easily have tried to build his own version of Amblin where he did a lot of really commercial stuff and just churn movies out and and could have been a bigger content producer but his the stuff he produced was always esoteric and strange and marginal and a lot of that Northern California community whether it's like Twice Upon a Time by John Cordy or like that and I love that I love the fact that a lot of the movies that his name is on just as an executive producer they're movies that really wouldn't exist if no. he hadn't helped that just to get that cloud and that right. money behind he them. He could have helped out even in a distribution way like Corman did and he kind of wasn't a distribution thing as much but he did help in that way putting his name on like Kagalusha and, and you know those things and uh, and this is another one where it was just like you forget like oh yeah he directed THX yeah. <laughs> you know like that's where his heart is is yep. THX but he's like you know the world said you're gonna be Walt Disney <laughs> you know and he is like and I think he bristled at that from day one like yeah, it never yeah. fit him properly yeah, yeah, it never fit him properly I agree and um, I think it's just a Criterion has a great disc and just it has an amazing documentary at BBC uh, Arena on Mishima that is uh, worth the price of the disc I don't know if it's still in print but if people have to fork over a lot of money I'm telling you it's, it's worth the worth buying um your next film we actually we've covered because uh, we got to the month where it came out and um it's a film that i've seen so many times it's since i first found it on videotape and that i love dearly vernon florida yeah um florida is amazing i again saw this there's a sound warehouse video and i became obsessed with errol morris because the blue line that's and, that's when i went back as well and started really digging in and i had heard that uh, Gates Ahead and was Roger Ebert's favorite movie and all this and I was like well god I gotta see these other films he's made and I had a teacher at my school my high school named Randy Lewis was his name and he had seen these movies I feel like I remember him going oh you gotta see these early um, Errol Morris movies and yeah so it's Vernon Florida which you've already covered but it is you know Nub City and he doesn't really find anything but what uh, any real of this stuff but what I just found interesting was to see a documentary that was that it casts a spell on you when you just you have to kind of sit and watch it no distraction and and I wish I could have seen this in the theater Sandwich Gates of Heaven because it does it 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 like rewires your brain while you're watching it. That, when that guy, over. the gobbler, the guy who's the obsessed gobbler. with the gobbler, yeah. uh, that guy, guy yeah. blows my mind. My favorite guy in the movie, though, is the super super old guy who just keeps pulling crazy animals out of those. Yeah, this is a turtle, the, the possum. Awesome, the, yeah. That guy's nuts, man. <laughs> yeah, but it's like you understand this weird philosophy that all these backwoods people have, it's, and it feels perfectly of a piece. That town yeah. feels like they all belong there. Like, yeah. Exactly. They all came out of this earth or something. It doesn't. And the, 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 I think what people talk, the best scene in that movie is the three guys at the gas station talking about how their, their friend killed himself and they start arguing over how he was able to shoot himself with a rifle is, is great. But it is just, it, it, uh, it's one of those movies that has a profound effect on me every time I watch it. And just, I, again, it's like Mishima in that way where I'm like, I don't, there's nothing like this and to have you know to, to be a filmmaker now that you know I've made things and been a part of things acted in a lot of movies there's so much writing there's so much money and people and time writing on a movie mm-hmm. it's, it makes films like Burn in Florida and, and, and real daring movies I have so much more respect for the filmmaker because uh, Errol Morris is sitting around there with a ton of people who are not getting paid a lot who are at his whim and you do want to like if you're like me kind of a people pleaser you want to make sure everyone's okay and you hope that the project's going to be okay so to have your persistence of vision of okay you guys are all here <laughs> i have the money 
we're going to shoot this guy talk about turkeys for about <laughs> two weeks and we're going to shoot it in a way like no one's ever shot a documentary and it probably won't work. That is quite the bar to set for yourself. You know, and then you go and then to have that confidence to do it, you know, I just I have a lot of respect for that guy. Um, I'm going to jump a little bit yeah, down on the do. list. Uh, there is a movie that you included here. I had the poster for this movie on the wall of my college dorm and it, before it came out because I stole it the minute it came into the theater uh, that I worked at and I was obsessed. I hoped this movie would be good. Of course, it tanked when belly up. I was one of like 11 people I knew who ever saw it until much later. But I think there's a growing cult for and a growing appreciation for the burbs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it might be my favorite Joe Dante movie. Yeah, it's not my, his best, but it's, it's one of my, my favorites. It's my favorite. It's unbelievably funny. John Mulaney and I, when we first met at Saturday Night Live, we had a huge... Um, we connected on the burbs in a big way and another movie on my list I'm going to get you sucker that was the other one that we connected on and we would sit and watch those in my office at SNL on writing night when we were supposed to be writing we would just sit and watch those movies and the burbs yeah I saw that movie in the theater I too remember seeing the poster as a kid I remember seeing it from afar just Tom Hanks in the pajamas and the, yeah, it's with great, the, the sky behind him everything and, yeah and and we uh, we actually you know we we had a screening of it at Cine Family that John and I introduced and John had reached out to Tom Hanks and um, Joe Dante and got their remembrances of it and all this stuff. But I, I, what always struck me about it was the humor in it was so specific, you know, and it it felt like a movie where Joe Dante. And the people involved were just trying to make themselves laugh. It had no real rules comedy-wise. It kind of, everything was thrown out. You know, it didn't have, like, John Hughes' movies had this similar thing, like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, where you could have very grounded jokes, but then have super surreal jokes. Oh, yeah. You know, that made, that you, and now, having done this... I know that that well, you can't have John Candy dressed up as, a, as the devil, you know, or you, you know, well, it's, 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 we're making it up, you know, it's, 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 it's in his head. It's subjective. And it's it's like, just how it feels. It's how he feels. And it's like, yeah, but that, that messes with the tone of the movie and the burbs. I mean, there's a scene where everyone's watching the people, the, the, what are they called? Clopac? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clopac. And, uh, and they're, they're moving in and it does these slow push-ins on everybody and then there's a push-in on a dog watching them and you're like oh yeah this movie doesn't give a shit like this is just like when I when I worked so with Joe I, there were certain things and this happens a lot when you meet a filmmaker and you get to you get to that place where you're comfortable talking to them where you, you can finally talk about certain things in their work and you can ask them questions the shot that kills me in the burbs is the shot where they pick the bone up and they realize it's it's oh, a human yeah. bone. And they do a big zoom in. Zoom in and out, zoom in and out. And when I started talking to Joe, I started laughing. I, I didn't even get fully through describing it. And Joe just put his face in his hands. He's like, it's the single dumbest shot in my career. No, it really so, is. But it just felt like it's that. It's the funniest. But it just felt like that day, they were like, why don't we just zoom in and out? Because we just want to make ourselves laugh. It's stupid. And we don't care if you like it or not. Where It's making us laugh. or. And Hanks and Dukeman together are terrific. Yeah, I love it. When He's Tom a Hanks, good foil for him. When Tom Hanks, <laughs> Hans Klopek, drives the uh, trash out to the street and then he beats it with a broom. It's clearly there's a dead body in the trash. <laughs> and Tom Hanks and Rick Turner are watching it. And he goes, that doesn't seem weird to you. And Tom Hanks says, yeah, no, I always drive my trash out to the street in the middle of the night and then start beating it. <laughs> and then I, told, I got to tell Tom Hanks this. When I was a kid, there's a scene in the Burbs where a house blows up and Tom Hanks emerges from the house. And he does this thing that I think and I told him this, I think it rivals Buster Keaton where he slides down the steps. Do you remember that? Yeah. Where he kind of does the same His thing. whole take until he's on the gurney is amazing. It's amazing physical yeah. comedy where he does this thing where he's kind of, he just got blown up and, but he does this amazing thing. And I, and I said, when I was a kid, I would stay in my backyard and I would try to do that where I would face forward and try to slide down three steps without yeah. making it like one step in it. I would fall and everything. But um, 
and and he was like, I don't remember how I, I, I can't even tell you how I did. You know, he just it was just he told me his memories of shooting that and everything. But um, that it had a huge effect on me. My my and also Bruce Dern in that movie <laughs> when Bruce Dern there's a scene where Bruce Dern falls off a roof that is one of the best Pratt falls because it looks real. It looks like a mistake. And it is so insanely funny. He falls off the roof of his house and it's not a big pratfall. It looks like your dad was hanging Christmas lights and tripped and fell. And um, it's perfect. And then the other line that kills me in that is uh, when brother uh, Theodore, when he says, uh, (laughs) they go to the Klopex house and Bruce Stern says, uh, uh, they, they said, oh, don't remember you moving in. He goes, the moving van was outside all day. And Bruce Dern says, about a nine on the tension scale there, Ruth. <laughs> and that, I would, we would repeat that over and over and over again. <laughs> about a nine on the tension scale there, Ruth. Like, it's such a funny, it's like, there's so much animosity and and uh, and the oh god, uh, uh, Tom Hanks eating the sardine and the cracker and, he, and having like this this fit. He starts having, he does a sneezing thing and I. There's also a great moment there where Tom Hanks runs into a screen door and he gets mad. And he just crushes <laughs> these two uh, soda cans. <laughs> Like it's the most impotent thing ever. He does. It's he a great angry Tom Hanks performance. It is. It is amazing. And he told me that it was that it was like the fourth movie in a row that he did. Like he did four movies back, 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 and that it was all shot at Universal. He was the actual. Uh, oh, it's the Monster house. Street. It's, it's Monster great. Street. It's, yeah, it's it's just a huge. It's a big geek dream that movie. But and then I talk. I'm really good friends with Colin Hanks. And I go, oh, man, your dad was in The Burbs. That's, like, one of my favorite movies. And he said, oh, I visited the set of The Burbs a lot. And I go, what do you remember from it? And he goes, I remember the, 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 I was 10, and the guy showing me dry ice. Okay. And he goes, and the big thing, not my dad, whatever, was Corey Feldman was in the movie. And Corey Feldman was the biggest thing in the world at that time. So he's like, so I just was, like, a 10-year-old trying to hang with Corey Feldman. <laughs> and I was like, that is amazing. Um. There's a movie on your list that I haven't seen. What's that? And that really excites me because I want you to tell me about The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. Oh, uh, this is a movie, going back to Errol Morris, I found a list of Errol Morris's favorite documentaries. And um, on there was, you know, uh, Land Without Bread, the Boomwell movie, and uh, uh, Man with Movie Camera, and and actually this, uh, uh, The Tales of the Grim Reaper, which is pretty recent uh, movie uh that was great but on his number one movie was the emperor's naked Mar- Mar- uh, army marches on the emperor's naked army marches on thanks and um and what it's about it's a documentary about this guy who was a japanese soldier world war ii and his i'm paraphrasing big time here but essentially his his uh platoon when they when the japan surrendered his platoon men fled okay and the commanders and his which they didn't call it whatever it was they uh, executed these guys who fled this guy survived this and now and he's been seething about it for about 40 years so now it's 1980s and he takes a film crew with him and he goes and finds these colonels and they're these nice old men and he goes into their houses and places of business. One guy owns a restaurant. One guy's retired. And he very politely comes down and sits and chats with them and says, you, you know, you, you did this. And uh, I want you to admit that you did this on camera. And if you do not admit it, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. The guys go, I don't know, get out of my house, whatever. And this guy calmly starts taking off his jacket <laughs> and just... It just starts beating the shit out of these guys. <laughs> oh my god! And and it's just it's a revenge documentary. It's just this guy is so angry, and you kind of go, "Well, who's insane here? This guy's acting insane." I mean, that's a wild, it's, wild thing to do. Yeah, but he's acting insane, and you're watching him be insane. But then you're thinking about what he's gone through, and you're kind of going, "Well, who?" It really messes with the uh, morality of the of, of the whole thing, but also the. Uh, 
just what war, I mean, this is totally simplifying it, but what war does to people and, uh, and this guy wanting justice and just looking like an insane person and committing crimes. He's walking into people's houses and beating them up and it has a thing in it, which I love, which is a real fight. I grew up like you watching movie fights. And then when you would see a fight in life, you went, wow, that's not oh, yeah. it's like in movies. And this one, you know, there's one guy, he's at his house, he starts beating the shit out of him, and the guy's fighting him back, and the guy's wife is screaming, and his son comes in, pulls him off of him, and then they just start talking. And then they kind of almost seem like they're friends. <clears throat> and then the guy says the other thing, and then they start getting mad again, and then they start fighting again, and now they're in another room, and he's hitting him with shit, whatever, and then they kind of separate him again, and they start chatting again. And then the cops show up and escort the guy out. And when they start escorting out, he starts fighting him again, you know? And it just, it just, it, it, and, and there's a 16 millimeter camera sound just there getting all this. Oh my God. And, um, it's really, really powerful. And you do watch it going, that man's insane. And, and you don't want him in your house. But then you're thinking, what what drove him to this? It feels like weirdly just wow. why it's happening to him. That so, sounds like that would be an amazing double bill with um, Act of Killing. Act of Killing. Yeah, Act um, of Killing. I, I think, I don't know if Joshua Oppenheimer has seen that, but when I saw the Act of Killing, I went, oh, God, this, yeah. I hope, I had this whole thing. We'll put the you know Emperor's Naked Mar- Army Marches on on one of those discs or something just to get it back out there because it, it has that same feeling of well, I gotta find of, that. Retri- of retribution, you know, uh, uh, about like some sort of a, an atrocity and wanting some sort of retribution for it. But what's interesting about this, where active killing is this kind of fascinating kind of lesson to this guy, you know, making him recreate it, you yeah. know, and having to look at himself. This thing is more just. Um, you know, I just, uh, it, it's, it's like, uh, what you do when you, you're at the end of your rope. And it doesn't sound like these guys are going to have any epiphanies. It just becomes this insane thing that happens it's, to them. It's a revenge fantasy. Yeah. It's like, I want to go in there with a camera and these guys are going to admit it. And if they don't, I'm going to beat them into admitting that this is what they did. And, uh, and that's just not the way human beings work. Right. But also how do they think that this guy's going to just forget this? You know, they were just following orders. They're, you know, <laughs> like, and you see them, and one guy is just, hello, you know, a little at a restaurant. You know, he's the manager at a restaurant, yeah. very sweet man, you know. Has no idea this is about to roll in. He has, and, that, and you get very anxious when he shows up because you're like, oh, this guy's about to get beat up, you know. So, yeah, that, and I, I, I was able to get that um, online. There's a, there is a disc of it. Okay. Online. Wow, that's that's intense. I want to talk to you about a couple of broad comedies you have on the list um, because I, broad comedy is that thing where it's really hard to gauge anybody else's response to it. Like yeah. super silly can work for one person, yeah. fall flat. And I think both of these movies are big broad comedies: the Private Eyes yeah. and I'm Going to Get You Sucker. Yeah, and totally different flavors. Yeah, but um, but let's start with the Private Eyes, which is sort of like a greatest hits compilation of every gag from every scary Three Stooges short. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you also think of Abbott and Costello yeah. and stuff. And, and it's with Don Knotts and Tim Conway. This movie I would put in with, uh, you know, I also talked to you about Jekyll and Hyde back together again with Mark Blankfield, which is like not a good movie. Private Eyes is not a good movie, but it was like a warm blanket movie when I was a kid. It was, we had it on a VHS. Do you remember, you have like VHS tapes with oh, multiple movies on So that? often. I was, I just did an episode where my friend from when I was 10 to when I was 16, my movie, my best yeah. movie buddy, he came on and we did an episode about just talking about remembering that stuff. And we had those tapes, those three movie tapes three where movie tapes, yeah. you, you got used to the rhythm of those three together in some way. Exactly. And, 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 Private Eyes was on the same tape as Jekyll and Hyde back together again in my house for some reason with commercials, right? So we were off television with commercials and, uh, and my Python, the Holy Grail, they were on one and they all had commercials and I can probably remember, I can, when I watch my Python, the Holy Grail now, I still have moments from like, 
well, here's where commercials supposed to come in. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I do. After the, you know, the Black Knight. You that know. happened with laser discs. I remember side changes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you kind of, you instinctively there get you up at, at certain <laughs> moments and you go, oh, it's 2017. Uh, but, yeah, I had that with, with these movies. And The Private Eyes is, again, it's kind of just a warm blanket m- movie. And my sister and I would watch it over and over and over again. It'd be a good, don't go with like Clue or something like that. It's they were a weird manufactured way. team where at some point somebody went, what happens if we put these two together? Yeah. And then it kind of took and they ended up doing a number of movies yeah. together. But it wasn't like Cheech and Chong where it was organic. And no, they had, not at all. It, yeah. You could feel that they were put together because one guy, it, it, it's not as bad as like uh, Jimmy Durante and Buster Keaton where it's just two guys who should not be together. <laughs> and it, it was more like these two guys were friendly, you yeah. know, but they're definitely both doing their own thing. And, uh, cause Knott's is top shelf for me. I'm yeah. a giant Don Knott's fan. Yeah. And this is not, there's other better movies to watch. I will say though, as a kid, I found it genuinely scary. This movie at yeah. times it did have the, you know, the cloaked figure that was kind of like the scream kind of character which was a bad person you know and like uh, you know it's it's like super corny but the lighting just the 80s-ness of that the 80s movies just had this real blown out look it was like this soft blown out look in all these movies where you could see exactly where the light is everything's really weirdly isolated and hot mm-hmm. and it looks uh, Crime Wave was another movie where you would see Sam Raimi's movies and they're all just, and then suddenly Crime Wave you're like what is this it looks fake Yep. You know, it doesn't look there's like there's a that comedy film. color yeah. that, that they did in the eighties. And uh, Blake Edwards movies have like the soft focus version of yeah, that. And all, there's, yeah, exactly. That was like a little bit but, but it was this thing we need to be able to see everything. It yeah. was like they got into the color timing and just like crank it all up because if we can't see everything it won't be funny and then that's this, why a great I, example is the incredible shrinking woman. Hundred percent, super garish, universal garish. color. That's the word I'm looking for. Is this garish thing? Yeah. Jekyll and Hyde back together again had it. Um, Midnight Madness, that movie, yeah. kind of had it. I remember watching that a lot. But then you would see something like Being There, which you know, '79, and that that's what was so weird about that and those Kubrick movies and everything is that they were shot like dramas, quote unquote, shot like dramas, and it is a thing that. I'm always coming up again when you're shooting a comedy and they, people go, well, wait, this looks dark and mm-hmm. weird. And you say, no, 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 that's the way it should be. There is a thing even now where it's kind of like you have to be able to see everything and everything needs to be bright. Small rooms, bright, you know, and it just, it never works for me for some reason. But 9 to 5 also has it. 9 to 5 is a, a great example of that. 9 to 5 also has it. And you just go, why, why? But I'm going to get you sucker. That that movie, I think, is really underrated. I think that I don't I'm not a big fan of Keanu Wayne stuff and like like since then. But there was this movie, another movie with Robert Townsend, the Hollywood Shuffle. Hungry movies. Very, very. Yes. And they're very funny. Uh, legitimately very funny. And um, yeah, this feels like one of those films where somebody's like, I'm going to put every single thing I've ever yeah. done or ever thought into this. And this is my one thing yeah. to, to get people to pay attention. Exactly. And, 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 you know, and Hollywood Shuffle actually had a great kind of real statement about being a black actor and the roles you're up for. Yeah. And, and I thought it was pretty good. But it had, like, really great Night of Living Pimps was one of the things in it. And, and But uh, uh, I'm going to get you stuck. I just, I mean, like I was saying, John Mulaney and I would watch this on, you know, it's when we were supposed to be writing and we would just be laughing so hard. There's... Uh, I haven't seen a lot of the black exploitation movies, but uh, Damon Wayans and the guy who plays his psychic, and I feel so bad I don't know his name, the two of them together are incredibly funny in this movie. Um, and there's also, um, and Kieran Wayans is really funny in it. You know, there's I just a scene where certain- he takes out a splinter and he screams like Rambo. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> he takes the splinter out and he goes, <laughs> Like that was it's funny and like that was a great one in the theater. I remember one of the biggest laughs from that movie in the theater was the platform shoe coming in. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a huge you know, laugh for an pimp of the year. That thing was, you know, uh, 
my bitch better have my money. Yeah. Serene Sleater Snow, my bitch better have all my cash. So she doesn't, I'm going to put it, my foot dead in her ass. <laughs> and you're like, what? But I, I also like Isaac Hayes listening to, um, listening to the radio. Do you remember that? Where he starts going, all the day. But just, again, they're just, it's my favorite thing in comedy, but you just tell like, they're just making themselves laugh. Yeah. And they're just being goofy and, um, uh, the Kung Fu Joe, that guy, whatever the character. Do you remember that where he gets out of the car? And yes. Like, the door is a jar. Yeah. The door is a jar. I said, close the door, shitty. <laughs> <laughs> remember how he dials the phone? He's, he gets shot up and he dials the phone, but he dials it like he's a Kung Fu guy. He's like, five, six, seven, five. And then the guy, uh, what happened to all the brothers? They got government jobs. That guy. <laughs> and in that thing is a little white girl, and it's the girl from uh, went on to be in Jurassic Park. She's in it. She has like one line. She goes, "Praise brother" or whatever. But it's very, very, very silly movie. Um, there's one on here that I did not get to see until much later. I was working in New York, and I had an agent at the uh, the Hirsch Agency who represented Schiller. Oh, yeah. And that was when I finally got to see, because he was like, I can get your copy. Yeah, nothing and he lasts forever. Gave me nothing lasts forever to see Tom. Yeah. Now, I saw it because Tom Schiller, I went to New York Film Academy, you know, the, the, in, uh, to the one in Princeton. So I was living in Oklahoma, decided to go to the one in Princeton. This is 1996. So I was 18. And it was the first time I hung out with, like, real film geeks and we were all making stuff in New Jersey and one of our the you know they had people professors come in from NYU and, and we had uh, Tom Schiller that's here. awesome and he showed us clips from this and I sat in this class when he showed us this clips of this movie that had Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and um, Zach Gilligan and, and all these weird cameos and it was just so strange but he was talking how much he liked Fellini and I at that time I'd, not, I'd seen Eight and a Half but I hadn't seen a lot of Fellini movies so it made me excited to watch all the the, the realist movies and then as they got more yeah. surreal and kind of um, that is a big just and that is a, one of my favorite things to do is you really discover someone's work and go chronologically and you kind of watch them grow is really exciting yeah and it gives you and, and you see where they kind of where they figure things out and they stop making the same kind of move you know and things like that and anyway Thomas Schiller was great and so yeah the movie it's kind of hard to explain it's a very strange film and I don't think is it because they don't have rights to well the music? Turner Classic Movies now shows it Every so often, they yeah. That's how I got a copy of it. Pop up every now and then, and that's really the best. Your best bet is wait for Turner Classic. Yeah, TCM actually, the people over there because I've done some stuff with them. They sent me a copy of it because I was like, "Do you have it?" And I watched it again. It is such a strange. It's singular. It is Schiller. There's a reason it didn't get a a wide release, which is it's impossible to really sell. Like I, I wouldn't even know how to cut a trailer for it. Yeah. Um, But it's. Uh, and I heard about it the first time because of Leonard Maltin's movie guide where yeah. it popped up in the movie guide what did he give it uh, he thought it was like a middling interesting muddled uh, attempt and I was like what is that? I've never heard of this thing and look who's in it and it really it took a long time to finally track it down yeah. it's um, it's a great example of somebody having that, that one moment where they got to do what they wanted and it's 100% his movie like, yeah, it is Schiller's movie. film and it does feel like a movie that is on a big, it weirdly is big and small at the same time. Where it's big, but you felt you feel like it's the kind of movie you feel that they are. Um, we have this week where everyone's available and we have the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So let's shoot this area. You know, here, whatever. You know, it, it doesn't. Um, it, it, it feels kind of weirdly well it's probably because it's so episodic and it just feels kind of cobbled together in this weird way but um, it's hard to describe I think people should just try there is a trailer online and there are clips online of Nothing Lasts Forever but that that's that's one that when people come over I, I tend to be like well let's just watch the first 30 minutes tell me if you're into it yeah. you know and 
Yeah. Well, it's it's great to blow people's minds if they've never heard of it. And yeah. it's just people come out and, and you don't like, tell them what and don't tell them about it. Yeah. Paul Rudd showed me the Bieber trilogy this way where he just sat me down and we watched it and he goes, Now here's the first version, here's the documentary, now watch this. And then you saw that, and then you showed me the third version, yeah. and I went, whoa! <laughs> you know, it was a mind blower. <laughs> and so when you watch uh, Nothing Lasts Forever, it's kind of good just not to tell anybody. And then they go, whoa, these people are in it? You know? yeah. um, I am infatuated with the screenplay for one of these movies, uh, Melvin and Howard. Oh, yeah. That, is, that was a case where, as I was learning what I liked about writing, um, Bo Goldman's script for that film is such a it, it's such a shaggy dog approach to what you think that movie is going to be, yeah. Which is all about the court case and everything, yeah. It's really not uh, that film at all. And to have the balls to have that opening that goes on, it's forever. A, it's like a twenty five minute opening, yeah. and it's just those two characters, and they are, and there's because there's no preamble because we're not set up to expect what it's going to be or anything. It just kind of has this. It evolves at its own pace. Yeah, that's what I love about. I love that about it, and I love Mary Steenburgen in it. She's amazing. Yeah, I really like her in the movie, and uh, and I don't think there were enough Paul Lamatt performances. I Paul Lamatt was such a special actor, and yeah. in this particular, uh, the the way he's sort of bad luck Job, like it, he cannot get out from under that thumb of bad luck, and yet he is unflappable. There's yeah. just something about him that it doesn't matter. He's just going to keep going. You know, like all the performances in that time, too, that it was very organic and very much behavior, like a behavior. Um, it was this weird thing that happened in performances, especially as the 80s got on, where things became very kind of big and kind of showcasey at times. And that's why I always like watching movies from the 70s, because it's you know, I don't know, Brando's influence or whatever it is, but everyone just, you were just watching behavior more, you know, the people weren't acting. You didn't catch people acting. Well, that's a certain Demi flavor that he did really well. And, and there was a point in his career where he never did it again. Yeah. Like early Demi is very different. Yeah. Um, Even up to like married to the mob. I still think of as this era of Demi where there's a comedy edge, but it's real shaggy. And you know, or the, the, and to have the, the, Demi just had these the, the the balls to just have these tone shifts too. I mean, yeah. something wild has the craziest one in it. But you know, Melvin and Howard, you just never knew where it was going. You know, it could go either way, and that's what I liked about it. It felt very just genuine and real. And like you said, it goes at its own pace. And you know, Jason Robard just great in it. But when I think about this movie, I think about the opening. I just think that I can't believe this is still going. Yeah, and that the balls to do that like you're saying it defies all screenwriting structure how a movie is supposed to go everything you know it's it's like um it's like high and low where you're going oh we haven't left this apartment yet yeah you know and then when we do leave the apartment we're not going to go to our main character anymore and you're like wait no you can't do that it's like, a, somehow and, movies work and then i go i'm i'm staying in la too long yeah. <laughs> you know I've been hanging out in this thing too long where there has to be rules and you're hearing the, um, you're hearing the executive note in your head going, guys, we got to get Mary Steenburgen in within the first 10 minutes. We got to get this character. You know, you watch Fargo, Francis McDormand doesn't show up until, you know, 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And that people would go, no, you can't do that. And I think that's why I like these movies. Did you see the Florida project this year? Yeah, I did. Early Demi. Sean ba- what Sean Baker did in that film kind of reminds me of, of early Demi, yeah, which is yeah. there's a real respect for the fact that people on the margins, there's a color to them perhaps, yeah. but it's not condescending. And yeah. I don't think Demi ever condescended to the characters he made movies about. No. And especially in those early days, that's middle America at a time when, you know, the there was redneck cinema. Certainly there was like all the... Burt Reynolds, yeah, Smoking the Bandit, bandit yeah. that kind of stuff. But his was, I think, a really more authentic. More that same culture of people, I think. I think the difference between that and Florida Project for me is I feel like that the main character, or not, I think definitely Willem Dafoe's character, the uh, the mother in that movie uh, with the kids, I feel like that didn't feel like very much like a Demi character. I think Demi would want to find the, um, the soft, yeah. gooey center to that woman and 
She does not. But there's something. But I, <laughs> there's something about the the Defoe character and his just the, yeah. the sense of humor of his stuff. Yeah, because exactly. I find some of his stuff very funny, but yeah. it's not jokes in any way. No, not at all. It's it's more just a guy like the character Melvin Howard, a guy just trying to find a positive spin on a really awful situation. You know, not an awful situation, but just this is his lot in life. Yeah, and this is what he's in charge of. And he's going to try to do it with as much humor and also as much compassion for people. He has a lot of compassion for that that mom. And that, little girl, that little girl is hell on wheels. And, and he's pretty girl, good about he's it. He's pretty good about it. A lot of people <laughs> in the theater I was in was like, kick him out of the fucking apartment. You know, they were like, get her out of here. You know? I love that girl. She is such a little hellion, though. A little girl, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's, she's pretty crazy. But it's... But, um, it's a, but I agree that it did have that early Demi feel, uh, and, and I think he he uh, I think um, Melvin and Howard is kind of like the the eighth. I always feel like there's Melvin and Howard, and then there's Silence of the Lambs. You know, it's yeah. kind of like that's the. But I think Silence of the Lambs would not have worked if it wasn't directed by a guy who I think genuinely hated violence and genuinely loved people yeah. and wanted to look at the at the good in people. You know, even weirdly, the Buffalo Bill shit when he's alone in the mirror and stuff, there feels like this weird compassion for this guy. I, I think that's that you is know, the greatest that, signature of his work is he has a giant, giant open heart and a curiosity about yeah, everybody. He thinks this guy's a monster. Yeah. And he is a monster. But he wants to look at him. He wants but to understand him. He wants to him. understand him. The thing with him in the mirror, the I'd fuck me thing and everything. I think that's in there for a reason. It's disturbing to people, but there also seems to be like this, like, I'm trying to get you. Like, oh, it would have been very easy not to have that scene in the movie and just let him be this guy that you see in a lot of those movies where you don't get to know them. Yeah. And that one scene made me understand his character a little bit. I'm um, always not a Norman Bates guy. He's like this guy that has like a lot of, there's a lot of pain. It's him hurt hurting himself and wanting to hurt other people and everything. And, and so I, I thought that was really fascinating. But I think you see it in Melvin and Howard, you, you know, you see it in, um, oh, my God, uh, the, it, was, uh, it had a different, um, uh, the Citizen Band. Or Handle with Care. Yeah, Handle with Care, I was about to say, yeah. it's like I get, I get it screwed up. Yeah. I saw it in Citizen Band, but um, that movie, too, you know, it's just great. Um, and finally, the last one uh, we'll do today. Uh, I... We just did Personal Best, mm-hmm. which I'm fascinated by. And I think the performance Mariel Hemingway gives in that is yeah. intense. It's a really de- – yeah. and she pushed herself. Um, pushed herself in a very different way for Star 80. Yeah. Um, and this is a movie that I I came to for the wrong reasons when I saw it young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think it's going to be – Of course. Yeah. Every, you, it's about a Playboy bunny. So every 12-year-old who hears about the movie has the wrong <laughs> idea walking in. You go, oh, my God. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of the joke where you see Bart Simpson and Milhouse walking out of a. They snuck into an R-rated movie and they're walking out of Naked Lunch. Yeah, it, I know at least two things wrong with that title. Yeah, Star Eighty is the opposite of a movie that you would watch for any kind of kick. No, it is. No. It is grim stuff. I, actually, it's weirdly. Um, I saw Star Eighty, and, and when I saw Boogie Nights, it made me think of parts of Boogie Nights reminding me of Star Eighty, not just the seventiesness of it. The queasiness. The, the queasiness, the darkness yeah. of that, and the cokiness of it. But, uh, you know, Bob Fosse, I think, you know, I read, he considered his, he was so hurt that people didn't like this movie. And I think, um, you know, Bob Fosse, you know, you watch Lenny and you watch all that jazz. He does like seeing the, the depths of whatever, you know, like what, how awful showbiz is to people how cruel show business is. Yeah. He's kind of fascinated by that. Yeah. And what show business does to people. And this movie kind of goes after everybody in a very subtle way. When you really look at it, um, it's a very ugly movie, but I, I, I definitely don't think, are great. I don't think Hef comes off. Well, I, the, the Eric Roberts, character does not come off. No. Well, and I, Eric Roberts is something else. It's a, it's yeah. one of those moments where you, an actor's got hold of something and went, I know how far I can ride this. Yeah, and but I also feel like Bob Fosse, you know, liking all that jazz, he has this thing where, it, you know, whether it's he, he wants to, and I get the impulse. Well, you read in a thing, um, 
you know, you read an article about the Dorothy Stratton case and it's like he murdered his, his girlfriend and then killed himself, you know, uh, or, or murdered his ex-wife, as you say, and killed himself. And then you say, well, no, that's, I, I, that it, it's a lot worse than that. And I'm going to show you beat for beat what that, what happened, I think. And it is that the, the, the ending of that movie uh, is incredibly hard to sit through. Yeah. And it's a major motion picture by a big director. And it was a major actors, holiday release. Like it was a big movie. Big for them. movie. And you watch it and you just, and, uh, and where those two actors go in that ending is, is, is rough. It's not as, and I should also say the other thing with Fosse that's weird is that he also comes from musical musicals and feet and you feel it in the performances the performances at the time are kind of big yeah. it's not Cassavetes or something which is interesting it is a, a, at times um there's, a, not, there's a real style to that movie it's very, very stylized, stylized in places very stylized but not stylized in a kubrick performance way where it's like kabuki theater almost or something it's like this other thing where he's he's having these two people kind of kind of uh uh, he really just wants to show you, well, here's what happened. And what happened was really, really awful and disgusting. And I'm just going to walk you through it yeah. and say, this is what ambition, you know, uh, the, the, the allure of fame and everything that the Paul Snyder character, that's Robert's character, everything that guy wanted that. And, and the, the other thing that sucks is then having done this, you know, for a while, I see those guys. Yeah. You see those people. They still exist. They're everywhere. Oh, yeah. And you see the Hefner-type people who who kind of are a father figure, but they're getting something out of it, you know, and, and, and it's... But it's all done very realistically. I can say, like, it, there was never a false note in it to me, you yeah. know, um, of going, I don't really think that's how someone would act or whatever. It's like, no, that's how people in showbiz... That's 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 the the way people use people, yeah. and um, and where it ends up is just. I always really, say when I think of the really ending rough. of this movie, I, I to me this is if you want to know what happened uh, on the night of OJ, it would yeah. be the exact same dynamic. It's yeah, same, exactly. This movie gets that horrible, curdled, broken dream thing where somebody's been pushed past the point of not only realizing that what they thought they were going to get, they're not going to get, but it was taken from them in a way they see, they feel yeah. is unjust and they feel persecuted and that paranoia and everything else that just whips into violence. And yeah, the, you the way it. Roberts gets there is, I mean, it's very believable and terrifying. There's a great moment in it where he's, she tells him when he, she, you know, Dorothy Stratton shooting, the movie in New York, which was essentially they all laughed and, and uh, they don't say that in the movie. But uh, but he, he he's he's talking around and she goes, oh, I can't because I'm over at a friend's house. And he has a, suddenly an image of her saying that to her mother so she can hang with him. So he his paranoia, that's the weird thing. His paranoia in this movie, he's right. Yeah. And that's, that's what's fucked up about it is that it's not a Jake LaMotta thing. To a degree, it's like a real, like his paranoia is true and that makes it really complicated. But what always stuck with me about this movie, as I'll say, is like kind of what I was saying earlier about Bob Fosse is he has, you know, people know him for his choreography and stuff, but his film, his films, I felt like trying to get to just the, the, just the base cruelty of something and to really show you something that happened that was awful. That's what really stuck to me about the movie was that any other, a lot of filmmakers would not have had that scene be so long. And I think it's kind of what killed it for people because it's, it's it's not a fun experience. But I think Bob Fosse's like, yeah, no shit. It shouldn't be a fun experience. Like, fuck you. Like, if you came to see this movie. You're going to see all of it. This you're is gonna, what happened. Yeah. Like, what do you want me to do? And yeah. it's kind of like Lenny when he does the stand-up at, at Lenny and he's all, he's all fucked up and he just holds on this stand-up set that's excruciating. For like, it feels like an eternity. It's just one locked-up shot of him bombing and he's on drugs. And anybody would go, you know what? We got it. I think less is more in this bit. And he's like, no, fuck you. Yeah, no. Can you imagine <laughs> being in that room that night? Yeah. When this is what you, you went and saw. This is what Lenny was at that point in his career. Exactly. This is what you experienced. This is what you saw. And I, I really, uh, there's just so much 
balls to that. And I really respect that. I'm just like, no, no, you have to, I'm going to make you sit through this. He's one of our greats. And I, I, I do think that he doesn't get canonized the same way that a lot of the late seventies guys do. Yeah. Maybe it's cause he was from a different era that he had started out through the studio system. And people kind of just know he didn't, we didn't make a lot of movies, but the movies he made, I think all of them are pretty, yeah. even sweet charity's got amazing stuff in it. Um, I think all that jazz is one of the greatest movies of the set. As as he worked, he just got more muscular and he yeah. got more real and he just strips stuff down. And you're right. I think there was a, a real sense of self-exploration and self-condemnation of the business that he was in that had fed him for so many years. Well, look at all that jazz. I mean, you never see a movie that's harder on someone. At moments, I'm like, oh, it's like he's a genius or whatever, you know. And, yeah. But no, by the end of that movie, it's like he's a he's just kind of like this it's very complicated he's like no no I'm a bad person and, and you're like I, I, I don't I, you can let yourself off the hook a little Bob it's okay <laughs> but, yeah um, yeah but it's a I, I uh, Star 80 I, I recommend but I always tell people you know if if uh, violence you know bothers you yeah. I would not I would maybe not I would skip it but I find it really uh if you can, if you can watch the piano teacher, you can handle starting. <laughs> it's like I say that now, but then I'll, I'll watch the Criterion and the piano teacher, and I'm like, well, this is kind of worse than story. <laughs> it, it really depends on the on the day, man. I don't know. The piano teachers are real hard sit. I was like, fuck, this is rough. <laughs> I mean, I like the movie, but Jesus Christ, this yeah. is rough. But it has that same thing. I think it, it, it's movies made by people like Haneke is the same thing who hate violence yeah and they don't think and I feel like with Bob Fosse like the idea of you know a John McTiernan movie or you know some sort of kick-ass action alien to him just is disgusting yeah not only alien just it disgusts him and then you felt with it he's like no no you want to see it this is what it fucking looks like and it's hard it's sad it's 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 degrading you know it's 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 awful and you, you, you sense that with, with Haneke stuff too where it's just like no I, I, I hate violence and so I want to show you like this is what it looks like and, and there's no kick to it there's no kick to it it's awful yeah. and and I, I I really respect that as I get older I really yeah. respect that you know? yeah. and it's it goes counter to 99% of what our business does a hundred percent I you know I, I had a my grandmother was very uh liberal grandmother I remember watching Die Hard with her and and she was watching Die Hard with me in the scene where there's a you know like all Joel Silver movies there's no reason like there's a naked woman having sex with a guy and she runs out and I instinctively hid my eyes and my grandmother went no that should be okay these guys getting their heads blown off I, you should be hiding your eyes at that I don't like this stuff you yeah. know I was like get out of here hippie <laughs> 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 Bill, thank you so much for doing no this, man. And um, uh, I'm really excited to see Barry in the spring. Oh, I just thanks, saw the man. first trailer for it. Yeah, 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 it's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, hopefully people dig it. All right. And uh, yeah, uh, go see those movies if uh, you know, <laughs> if you dare. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Now, I, this is the first time I've walked away from one of these, and I have something to go track down. Oh, right, right on. So yeah, it's a good deal. Very cool. Thanks, man. Thanks.